Welcome to the first ever episode of Solutions. I'm Elias. And I'm Grant. And we've got a great episode planned for you today. We're going to be talking about one of the biggest issues facing our country, one that is likely to become even more of a problem very soon, and that is homelessness. On any given night, there are 567,715 people who are without permanent housing, 211,000 of which are on the street uh, without shelter. Now, in my opinion, it is embarrassing to live in a country with such exorbitant wealth that still allows so many of its citizens to suffer. I shouldn't need to give too big of an explanation about how big of a problem this is. It's something that many of us see every day, especially those of us who live um, closer to the inner cities. And um, there are a few measures in which the problem has gotten better. There are a few measures in which the problem has gotten worse. Overall, homelessness has been decreasing slightly, but in places like LA, the number has actually doubled over the past decade. And so my hope is that in this episode, we can give you all a better idea, a better understanding of what we can pragmatically do in the um, in our lives as voters, as communities, et cetera, to finally put an end to this crisis. So to give sort of an introduction as to what this podcast is about and how we're going to be approaching it, Grant and I will be hosting every episode together, and we've spent about a month-ish compiling research uh, separately in our free time about how we might propose tackling this issue. So we've each come up with one or more solutions, which might be based in policy, cultural shifts, philanthropy, volunteering, whatever we think is going to be effective and solve this problem. During the episode, we'll hear each other out. We'll see where we landed on everything and how much we're in agreement or disagreement, maybe talk about potential caveats or obstacles. And hopefully at the end, we'll provide some tangible ways that you, the listener, can help solve this issue. So I'll kick it off with you, Grant. What were uh, what did you discover in your research? How would you tackle this problem? All right. So mainly the uh, policy that I would be a strong advocate for to sort of curb the uh, homelessness problem would be a housing first program wherein we provide housing to people um, that need it with very little or no sort of um, requirements or, uh, you know, they don't have to meet any um, sort of arbitrary uh, expectations. And then coupling that with um, additional um therapy and um, potentially um, aid with addiction, because that's also a problem that's statistically higher uh, amongst the homeless population. Awesome. I came up with a few different uh, solutions and a few different angles to tackle the problem with, and Housing First was definitely a big aspect of my solution as well. And and it seems what's cool about it is this is actually something that they're that the U.S. and Europe have been like slowly kind of shifting towards over the past few years. And uh, it's proven to be very effective in um, pretty much everywhere it's been tried. There's not we don't have like decades of data on it yet, but uh, I know that in Finland they've almost eradicated homelessness thanks to this solution. And uh, especially in you know cities where there are more problems with addiction and there are more you know obstacles mental health obstacles and things like that that people might have um, people experiencing homelessness tend to function better when they have a house when they have privacy and security and all that so that's sort of what this housing first program is is based on you know as opposed to like a staircase model where you would expect them to figure out 
some aspect of their lives before being considered, you know, quote unquote, ready for a house or something like that. Uh, housing first is basically you get the house and then we also simultaneously provide you with, you know, whatever resources you might need. So, so it's cool. It sounds like we're off on a good start because we kind of agree on the, the first aspect of the solution. Absolutely. And I think that um, comparing it to sort of the status quo, I know we started like this is the one kind of evidence that uh, or um, research that we share shared was based on um, what it costs now in terms of hospitalizing uh, and doing incarceration, emergency room fees. Um, I think that was the Vox article that we looked over where um, it costs like thirty one thousand dollars per year um, based on data from Central Florida versus like housing first would cost ten thousand uh, per year. And then there was another study um, looking at L.A. County where the county saved 20 percent by putting people with complex mental health issues um, in support of housing rather than relying on just like law enforcement and emergency room visits. So it's sort of like it's it's really I, I think of it as kind of an investment, really. You know, you're going to provide a housing, which, you know, a lot of people, I think their initial reaction to that proposal is going to be like, oh, it's going to cost so much. We're not going to be able to do it. It's unrealistic. When in actuality, it's actually cheaper than the consequences of not doing anything about the homeless problem and just leaving um, the show, the social systems as they stand to sort of correct this problem that they, they're not designed to actually provide any sort of um, permanent uh, fix to or any fix, really. Because housing first isn't a permanent fix in of itself. Homelessness um still exists where there are like housing first programs but we can get into that later yeah for sure um and you're absolutely right about the costs i think part of what um helped to popularize this uh strategy over recent years was uh um an F a study that came out by the what was it called it was by nithya raman who's now on city council as of this recent election uh she was working for the city in 2014 and put out a report where la had spent was it 100 million like a year or over time or something like that but like 90 percent of that money was just going towards putting people in jail and that was like the budget for solving homelessness was just basically like rounding people up on the streets and and uh that sort of raised a lot of people's uh, awareness and open a lot of people's eyes about um, how ineffective the spending has been so far on this. So uh, so since then, there's been a little bit more of an effort on housing first and just helping people. And uh, in 2016, they passed Proposition HHH, which passed by, I think, like 77%, which is a huge for, for a, a bill being passed or a proposition, so to speak, um, which basically allocated... 1.2 billion dollars in general obligation funds to partially subsidize the construction of up to 10,000 units of supportive housing and they've been kind of slow with that goal and so you know we can talk in a little bit about like sort of some of the obstacles that come up when you build housing in large cities um and i think by now there are just uh, only three of the developments are actually ready to uh house people and this is something they've been working on for the past four years so we can go into that actually as as sort of a stepping stone um let's talk about some of the problems that come up when we uh try to build homes and when we try to provide houses for people um so one thing 
that I saw as a constant pattern when researching this is that the zoning laws in a lot of these big cities don't really account for the uh, the population growth and the demographics of these cities. So for example, in Los Angeles and in, uh, I believe in New York as well, the most of the city is zoned for single family houses, you know, which doesn't help these people who are lower income, doesn't help people who you know, might, might benefit from programs like this because it's cheaper to put them in apartments and there's such a low quantity of apartments, which means low supply, which means they end up costing more and there's not enough to go around for everyone. So that would sort of be another aspect, in my opinion, to the solution for this would be to fix the zoning laws. This is something that a lot of advocacy groups and politicians have been trying to look into. They have a new sort of plan as to how we're going to, or how Los Angeles is going to uh, start redefining some of their zones, but there hasn't been really enough progress on that. Um, in fact, the zoning code in Los Angeles hasn't changed since 1946. So that would be another aspect is to, to change the zoning laws um, so that we can actually uh, support more um, apartments and more lower income housing. Absolutely. I don't know a whole lot about the zoning law thing. So I think that that, um, that makes sense, uh, that it would be more of like a, um, systemic issue rather than something, um, malicious is something that I found to be kind of more true. Um, what I was kind of looking at was, um, the sort of cultural attitudes that a lot of people have about, um, not wanting like low uh, or like uh, subsidized housing near them, sort of like the NIMBY not in my backyard mm -hmm. attitude. Um, yeah. But it actually turns out that a lot of those um, attitudes um, aren't necessarily based in any evidence. And there's actually evidence um, to sort of counter that narrative. So um, there was a Stanford study um, sort of addressing a lot of the... Um, not in my backyard, you know, people who are concerned that um, developing and building um, low income or, or uh, inexpensive or, or free, quote unquote, housing near them will decrease their property values. Um, showed that most of the effects that are sort of felt are pretty minuscule. They happen within a, a tenth of a mile of wherever these um, projects or, or housing developments are built. And um, as it turns out, it's typically um, wealthier neighborhoods that are more adversely affected, but it's only by like 2.5% within one tenth of a mile of whatever is being developed to um, provide housing. So it's really, it's, it's really not a whole lot um, of an issue necessarily. Um, and then in lower income areas, it actually increases the property value by six and a half percent is what the study find, found. Um, and the study also found that there was no real effect on the crime rate either. So sort of a, another sort of cultural um, opinion of people, you know, they think, you know, we're going to have all these quote unquote, like homeless, houseless people near us, you know, oh, think of the crime. It's not necessarily based in any kind of reality. Um, and, and I wasn't able to find any study that indicated that um, these housing developments would adversely affect either um, general real estate trends or uh, the crime rates in whatever area they're being developed in. Um, I also have another analysis uh, that looks at um, 
a 10-year period from 1996 to 2006, the 20 lowest uh, or the property values in the 20 least affordable housing markets. And there was only really an effect in Boston and Cambridge, but it's, again, very minuscule effects um, on the overall like cost of real estate or whatever. Interesting. I do know that um, when you uh, when you tend to build more housing, uh, property values tend to decrease. So it'd be understandable for certain neighborhoods why that would be, you know, basically the people who might be affected by that are property owners. And it's, I believe that, you know, it's, it's something that we kind of have to balance whenever we think about policy is like who is going to be affected by what. And to me, I would prioritize, you know, even if that was a given, which it sounds like from the studies you cited, it's not even a given, but even if it was, you know, it, we have to think about what we as a society are sort of um, prioritizing, which, you know, hopefully in this case would be getting people on their feet, getting people, you know, out of shelters and out of the streets and things like that um, is probably more important than whether or not you'll be able to sell your house, um, you know, in a few years for for the biggest amount possible. Um, but I'm glad that you brought up the cultural aspect, because that's kind of something I want to zoom in on a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> You know, whenever we think about policy um, in order for, you know, we can talk about all day about what policies we want passed, but ultimately, you know, the voters have to be the ones to implement them. So when I think about public attitudes towards homelessness, I actually watched a, an interesting um, TED talk about this where uh, someone was talking about the fact that we look down on so many homeless people and we see them you know it's kind of this cyclical problem where you know the problem gets worse and then we see homeless uh individuals people experiencing homelessness as these like drug addicts who are just like screaming at people and they don't even want help and they're crazy and all of this stuff and i think that you know for for reasons that should be evident but you know we'll, we'll discuss them as well this is really not the attitude that we want to have. And I think people know that on a surface level, but it's worth sort of analyzing um, why that happens and and uh, challenging ourselves to have a better outlook on this. Because we, if we want to solve this as a community, then we're going to have to look at each individual as a human being who is just as deserving of respect as anyone else. And in addition to this, one thing that kind of ties into this is um, doing community outreach, uh, which is sort of one of the other solutions that I had in in my list of things that we can be doing. I looked into a, a number of organizations that provide services for the homeless that bring them uh, food and, you know, hand warmers and COVID masks and hygiene kits and things like that. And I think just in general, doing any sort of you know, broad outreach, or even just, you know, stopping to have a conversation with someone uh, who, who is on the streets who approaches you or something like that, or who you approach, um, can go a long way towards humanizing these people and helping them feel like they are recognized, like they're part of the community. And when, when we think about, like, all these laws and policies that are going to go in place um, that are planning on building these houses and providing vouchers and things like that, um, we start to get a little bit detached from the people that we're actually helping, you know, and that can drive 
a further wedge between you know us and them which we don't want there to be that wedge we want to embrace everyone um as you know as a community and that's that's sort of how we're going to make progress with this issue especially you know in the short term and the long term because some of these things take a while to get passed as well absolutely um i think that they're kind of going off of what you were talking about um i think that there is sort of a a fear of the homeless like i i it's something i've encountered in my personal life where people are like you know kind of what you were saying like they have this perception that they are all um you know like scary screaming drug addicts or whatever and that's just it's it's it 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 goes a long way in dehumanizing what's ultimately just like people who don't have somewhere to be um and and they're not really any different from anyone else it's just that they are in a really difficult um socioeconomic position um there was a study conducted by two guys named scott clifford and spencer pittston they published their work in uh, the Washington Post again. I'm repping for the Washington Post uh, this episode, I guess. And they conducted a national survey of 861 um, adults. And um, they asked like sort of what policies they would support um, regarding the homeless. And with this sample, they found that both of them would have supported like financial aid and subsidized housing. But on the other hand, um, supported bans on things like panhandling and sleeping in public and that sort of thing. Um, and it sort of stems from just a, uh, an, a sense of disgust that a lot of people have from homelessness because things like panhandling and sleeping outside, that's when people actually see the homeless, right? That's what are right. people without house uh, housing. Um, so it's like it's more of an immediate thing for them but if they advocate you know just sort of um ethereally like oh yeah public housing like a lot of people tend to be more in favor of that part of when i was doing my research i found uh this youtube channel which uh I, it's pretty popular so some people might have heard of it maybe you've heard of it but it's called invisible people hmm. i haven't heard of it um and so basically what invisible people does they're like a organization um that basically like has discussions with people who are experiencing homelessness and uh, broadcasts a lot of these discussions on their YouTube channel. And they uh, also advocate for certain policies and they help people organize to um, to write their representatives about these policies and things like that. And um, I found that when I was watching these videos and hearing about people's experiences, I almost felt like that was teaching me more than when I was looking at studies and policies and graphs about this sort of thing, because there's, I mean, this, this type of issue and these types of experiences are so nuanced and, um, there's just a, there's just so much more to it than, you know, a, a simple fact sheet or a simple chart, you know, the, the fact that a lot of these people can't wash their hands, you know, which we're all supposed to do right now be frequently because of COVID. And so there was a huge worry about a lot of these individuals um, getting uh, diseases and things like that. Um, and there's just a lot of things that you don't really think about until you have um, either talked with one of these people or, you know, seen a, a discussion with them. And I think that exposing ourselves to that can really go a long way towards empathizing with these people and eventually, you know, drafting policy and helping organizations that actually do the most that they can do for these people. 
100%. I think that you and I are both probably in solid agreement that um, this is this is probably, I mean, it, it kind of intersects with like um, economics and, and whatnot, but ultimately, fundamentally, um, I think it's a human issue because every human needs shelter. Yeah, absolutely. It's a prioritization issue. It's it's if we wanted to put our resources towards this, then you know we could. This is an issue that we could solve, and that's why I thought it would be a good uh, topic for this. And I'm glad we are talking about it, just because this is something. You know, this isn't something like you know how are we going to build uh, you know civilization on Mars or something like that. That there's all these like crazy like ideas about you know this. This is something that we have enough data to know what works and. Uh, this is something that we've been, um, you know, some groups have been working towards for a while. Some groups and individuals have been working against, but, you know, so there's kind of a push and pull, but ultimately this is something that if we put our minds to it, we can accomplish. 100%. And I think that um, another thing to talk about um, is sort of what this looks like in modern American politics. Um He's <laughs> he's no longer uh, necessarily going to be the president, but um, the Trump administration fits pretty um, interestingly into this topic. Um, so recently, uh, Trump proposed cuts of six point one billion dollars to like affordable housing programs, um, as well as like eight point six billion uh, to HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development. Um, organization yeah yeah yeah. huge cuts um and it's it sort of begs the question of like why is this administration which politically is is it's not popular in the sense that a majority of the people believe in it but it is popular in the sense that there is political um momentum behind a lot of what trump stands for Mm -hmm. and sort of it it harkens back really to some really problematic stuff. And I think that this um, is indicative of a larger cultural problem. So after he had uh, rescinded an Obama regulation that aimed to reduce housing discrimination, Trump said that, um, you know, the suburbs are like these uh, beautiful places. People fight all their lives to get there. And um, he said, quote, there will be no more low-income housing forced into the suburbs. It's been going on for years. I've seen conflicts for years. It's been hell for suburbia. Um, and that was in a talk, uh, that was during a talk in Midland, Texas. And so I think that this is, um, like, it's sort of like this almost fetishization of suburbia and this idea that, like, suburbia is, like, the peaceful place and it's the clean place and low-income housing is related to like seedy sort of um things that aren't good basically sort of crime ridden disease ridden whatever sort of just like an othering um going back to a topic that we talked about earlier um Mm -hmm. that occurs with those that are struggling to find housing or that rely on um subsidized housing or uh yeah subsidized housing yeah what's super interesting about this is um I actually looked into like why it is, uh, well, this is related to this. I looked into why it is that we subsidized homeownership at such high rates um, because the New York Times article that I was reading about the the fact that we could, I think the title of the article was something along the lines of we can solve homelessness right now if we want to. um, And it was advocating taking 
uh, some or all of the money that we're using to subsidize homeownership and putting that towards HUD uh, for vouchers, uh, among a lot of other things, you know, building new houses so that they're more affordable, that sort of thing. But um, but after I read it, reading that and reading about how um, how much we subsidize homeownership, I got kind of curious about that. And I actually lo looked into this other article that details the history of the subsidization of homeownership. And it actually sort of began with this propaganda campaign um, promoted by the homeownership industry in early 1917 uh, called the Own Your Own Home uh, promotion, basically, which was exacerbated by the uh, the New Deal and the, the stock market crash and everything. And, and this idea that we need to rebuild the American dream and the American dream was synonymous with owning a house. You know, it wasn't synonymous with just having a roof over your head. It had to be owning a house. And so that was kind of the priority for so many Americans. And it all had to do with basically the, the you know, the reason the homeownership industry lobbied for this uh, and advertised for this was basically for, to boost their own bottom line. You know, they're going to make more money if more people are buying high-end apartments and, or not apartments, high-end uh, houses. Um, and if these houses are priced at high rates, you know, if they're if they're very very valuable, then that's going to benefit the um, homeownership industry. And and they, and then also there was a lot of um, racism involved because to uh, apply for you know before the 1968 Fair Housing Act and even somewhat after that, but the act made it a little bit better. The uh, FHA and the Veterans Administration mortgage programs largely only served white applicants, and they were able to just pick and choose who was able to uh, get these tax cuts and vouchers and things like that. And um, that, you know, obviously because of the way generational wealth kind of works, we see the effects of that today. You know, more white people own houses percentage-wise than other races you know and so it's it's kind of fascinating to think about like how the this idea of the american dream being so closely related to home ownership and then you know all these tax cuts and everything it, it really has its roots in uh some in basically lobbying and, and marketing to, in order to make people sort of think that way and then vote that way yeah absolutely and then um sort of going off into what you were talking about how um you know the fha was providing loans uh specifically um and the va as well after the world after world war ii sort of in like the golden age of capitalism um that sort of gets into redlining right where like you had mm -hmm. certain areas uh that were sort of designated as less valuable which would mainly the reason why they were less valuable is because minorities lived in them and this this was a policy uh within the um, FHA until 1968, until we had the Fair Housing Act. And I think that that was fueled a lot by sort of this um, otherization of, you know, certain minority groups moving into suburbia as well. And um, that there's sort of like a fear that like suburbia is going to be corrupted by you know, it's it's sort of like a dog whistle, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and what uh, going back to uh, the man who will not be president soon, uh, Donald Trump, uh, he tweeted at one point that the suburban housewife will be voting for me, 
that they want safety and are thrilled that I ended a long running program where low income housing would invade their neighborhood. So, I mean, like that's pretty dog whistly when you take into account the history of how segregated suburbia was and Mm. and how uh, to a lesser extent, how segregated it is now. Um, Because like you said, wealth is passed on from generation to generation. And and that is hugely affected, um, affected by whether or not your parents owned property, right? That's the point I was trying to make. So, you know, if, if, if you come from a line of homeowners, uh, going back three or four generations, the chances of you having better economic opportunity, um, not just from, you know, the money, uh, sort of made by selling whatever property your parents lived in, but also just because like, if you live in an area with better housing and higher real estate prices, chances are your public school is a lot better and it's a lot better funded. And that provides you a um, social opportunity that a lot of people don't have. If you take that into consideration, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, there is sort of a racist element that um, sort of is against um, providing more accessible housing to uh, people. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you definitely have a point there about the dog whistling about suburbia and these low income neighborhoods and what exactly that means and everything. And and I think that, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier about how um, when these people actually get a chance to meet those who are in different income brackets and who have different lived experiences, you know, hopefully that will sort of drive away some of the prejudice towards these groups. So I I think that that kind of has to be a big part of the solution here is um, not having these like isolated groups of people that, you know, never get a chance to intercommunicate you know it drives divide it drives polarization and it drives stereotyping which you know it's it might be surprising to some people to to find out that that there is still so much um you know covert and you know even overt racism um in this country but you know like we've been saying it's passed passes down over generations and there's you know the dog whistling makes it seem like it's not actually racism even when it is pivoting to um slightly more optimistic aspect of this. Um, We were talking about how, um, you know, I I went into a little bit about the, uh, the fact that housing is so expensive in these cities and that that is kind of an obstacle to getting these housing first programs off the ground. And um, in doing my research, I, you know, definitely found some, some good news about um, a, more recent development, which you know has gone viral, some people might be kind of familiar with it, but uh, 3D printed housing is finally becoming a thing. Um, there's this company called Icon, uh, and there's a bunch of companies that are investing in this and, and building prototypes and things like that. But I believe the first successful one was uh, built in Austin, Texas, in 2018, where um, it the base for the house was built in like 48 hours. And they built it on site, but I think they're also doing, um, or there's some of these that are also just like building them in factories and shipping them. And there's sort of pros and cons to doing it each way. But what's really cool is that um, a lot of these houses, instead of costing like, you know, up to upwards of 400K and even higher, you know, in highly regulated places like Los Angeles, um, these houses 
uh, these single unit houses can be built for anywhere between like 4K and 10,000, uh, which is a monumental improvement. And considering um, the, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals experiencing homelessness living in these cities that, you know, especially when they're zoned for single family houses, um, I see this as kind of a revolutionary way to sort of address the problem of there not being enough affordable housing. And um, uh, this, the company I mentioned, Icon, is actually working with a charity called New Story, which um, they're, they're working together to build this project in El Salvador based on the prototype they built in Austin, Texas, where they're actually going to build an entire neighborhood of these 3D printed houses and give them away to people who are in need. And this is going to be kind of a testing ground for how um, how effective this strategy can be in the future. And the hope is that you know more nonprofits can get on board with this, and governments can start implementing solutions based on this. And eventually, you know, this could be a, a huge step for uh, solving the problem. Just getting more of these three D printed houses built. Yeah, um, I hadn't heard of this. Um, I think I maybe saw like a three D printed house like years ago. Like maybe it was that twenty eighteen thing. Uh, in Austin, Texas, that you were talking about. But I feel like mm -hmm. this is also a huge benefit to um, providing housing to people who need it because it sort of helps to remove the rhetorical obstacle to basically any social welfare or um, aid, which is how are you going to pay for it? If we can now create houses that are $4,000, $6,000, $10,000 a piece that, you know, I'm not sure like the quality of these houses are like how lavish they are, but even if it's just, you know, like basic room, kitchen, bathroom, like bare minimum, what a person needs to live. That's, um, that's a great step forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and way better than a shelter, like, you know, regardless of it. And, uh, they're, they're made with this, uh, this, um, at least the icon ones are, are made with this new sort of material that they've built called Lavacrete, which uh, it's really cool. It can be like printed layer by layer. Uh, we'll drop a video in the description that sort of uh, uh, showcases the process. It's it's actually really cool. And then, you know, one of the, you know, if, if, if you have extra money to, to go toward, you know, any of the um, several um, organizations that are fighting homelessness, you know, New Story would definitely be one of the more innovative ones. Um, so we'll drop links for that in the, the show notes as well. Um, one thing I forgot to mention uh, in the introduction is that during every episode, we're going to be writing a whole show notes uh, thing, a whole page, uh, basically, of everything we've been talking about, um, links to all of the articles that we're citing, uh, and then, you know, once we come up with, you know, if we have sort of a list of um, um, plans of action, then, you know, we'll sort of list that in there as well. So you won't want to miss that. It'll be on our Medium page. Um, and yeah, so 3D printing house, 3D printed housing, um, I believe it's going to be revolutionary. And um, one of the things that um, a lot of homeless act advocates and people who run shelters and things like that uh, have talked about is, you know, just the need for um, for revolutions like this to um, really reshape how housing development works. And so that, yeah, that's, so that's another hope that I have is, is that that continues to be innovated on in the near future and um, becomes a 
primary um, way of sort of countering um, this issue. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't know if I have anything to add to that. Yeah. Cool. Um, another thing I had written down here is the, so when I was thinking about the high cost of housing, um, you know, obviously the 3D printed houses are going to help, but that's not going to be for a while. Um, but something that got me thinking about this recently, you know, as someone who works from home and, you know, considering that we don't know exactly how long COVID's going to last and, you know, this is already kind of transformed um, how the job market operates and a lot of companies have reoriented toward this new reality. Um, one thing I've been thinking about is, well, why is it so expensive to live in the city? And part of the reason, of course, is because, you know, this is where all of the tech companies are, you know, um, this is where all of the wealthy people sort of, you know, end up moving to and then, you know, consolidating in these places and gentrifying these places. And then this becomes the hub where where everything is, where you have to be in order to find a job and things like that. And so thinking about how COVID has affected all this, you know, it has me thinking, you know, you don't necessarily need to live in the city anymore to to work a lot of uh, different jobs, you know, especially more more technical jobs and um, more design oriented jobs and things that are that can be done behind a computer, you know. So thinking about how the job market has changed, um, you know, that has me thinking that that could be a solution in and of itself. Um, just embracing working from home so that people aren't so consolidated in these cities. We can spread out the housing developments that we build using these government funds for people experiencing homelessness. And, um, and that'll, you know, it'll drive down the prices. Um, and yeah, and I think that will be, I think that's a, a good thing to start thinking about, you know, if you're someone who owns a business, if you're someone who works somewhere that could operate on a working from home basis. But um, yeah, what do you think about that, Grant? Yeah, if you, if you have a, a group of people who maybe they'd have to drive to their quote unquote place of work, like once a month or every other week or whatever, then that gives them a lot more um, liberty to sort of move away from areas where the cost of housing is so high, which would probably affect, you know, the overall price of housing within those, you know, previously more expensive areas, like in metropolitan sort of urban areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that could be a, a huge, um, a huge shift. And it'll be interesting to see if in the future, you know, like, you know, right now we have areas that are pretty divided between like, this is urban, and this is suburban, this is rural, and it'll be interesting to see, like, as internet coverage becomes better nationwide, then, you know, hopefully things will start to spread out and blend a little bit more and then there'll be less polarization and, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, maybe we should be cautiously optimistic as opposed to uh, just completely optimistic. But, um, you know, at the very least, it's, it's going to be a trade-off for people who prefer that office environment. Um, but I think it could go a long way towards decreasing the, prices for for housing and you know hopefully moving towards a, a world where you know not everything is so consolidated into highly densely populated cities and you know there's more uh more kind of wealth to go around more opportunities to go around um, i think that could really do a lot for the unhoused population um 
in terms of having places to go because i'm pretty sure more than half if not a lot more than half of people experiencing homelessness are in these major cities so um, being able to spread out the resources could i think go a long way i absolutely agree spreading spreading resources is a good idea everybody you heard it here first absolutely <laughs> solution to all problems spread the wealth yep <laughs> yep we're, we're, i think i think we're done with the whole podcast now we just uncovered the the solution yeah to this is the first and last episode uh <laughs> get all the wealth give everybody the same amount of wealth and um this isn't communism but uh maybe we just try this a little bit don't, you know don't worry don't worry grandpa this isn't communism <laughs> nobody nobody call huac on me please i've been a good boy i swear <laughs> i love my country i love bald eagle and american striped flag i don't do anything bad i promise <laughs> um so i think we're about ready to wrap this up um we talked about a lot of things uh, it seems like we were um sort of go back to the beginning we were in agreement about um, housing first being a really phenomenal policy, especially compared to, you know, the policy of just, you know, giving uh, these people one thing at a time and then afterwards giving them housing. People need housing to give themselves a stable foundation in order for them to be in a mentally healthy place and then, you know, get themselves on their feet. It's been proven effective in many countries, including our own. And uh, in order to in order to effectively implement a housing first model, we need houses and apartments that are, you know, decently priced so that we have the money to afford this and the, the money to to build these housing developments. Zoning plays a huge role in this. A lot of cities are still zoned for single family homes instead of multifamily homes and apartments and things like that due to you know, the propaganda campaigns that we talked about and just the history of the American dream and the way that people view housing in the United States and as well as the you know the NIMBY stuff that you brought up about you know people not wanting um, lower income housing next to them and sort of the like racism and bigotry and um, prejudice, the prejudice that comes with that. Um, and so that because of that, a lot of this is related to a cultural shift that needs to take place in order for this to work. We need to, when we see these people on the streets, we need to not constantly walk by and ignore them, but, you know, greet them with a smile. And even something as simple as that can can help their lives be a lot better and decrease the hostility between all of us and help us learn a little bit more about their situations. Um, we've also linked some videos where you can learn about the experience of being homeless. And we talked about how the media plays a role in how people view this sort of thing. And um, additionally, you know, I'd like to bring up something that we kind of touched on briefly when we were talking about 3D printed housing. There's a lot of places you can donate to if you have some extra money. Um, New Story is a great organization that's really revolutionizing things with, uh, they've actually been doing housing for a while, um, but specifically with this partnership with Icon, focusing on this 3D printed housing, I think it's gonna be a real game changer. And uh, we'll see this, this El Salvador project is going to, give us a lot of data about how this can work 
And, um, but I'd also recommend uh, going into your, checking out your local homeless shelters and, you know, donating and volunteering and seeing what items they need. A lot of times these organizations need just things like blankets and canned food and things like that. And, and these things really go a long way. And ultimately, it's about building a community. There's also Wound Walk and OC, which I'll link to, which is a, a group that I saw featured on the Invisible People channel, which uh, is sort of going around and, and providing, um, you know, things like like these, uh, you know, hygiene kits and medicine and stuff like that for people on the streets uh, where disease tends to run rampant. So ultimately, there is a lot you can do, which I would say means we you know, have made a pretty successful uh, podcast episode and a pretty con convincing case for all this. I don't know. What would you say, Grant? Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, and I think that what's most important to keynote here is that both of our approaches are sort of um, the primary function of our policy ideas are is to literally fix homelessness, not sort of make um you know homelessness decrease through sort of tangential or unrelated uh, economic or social policies but primarily um making sure that those that need housing get housing um because i think if 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 that's the primary objective that uh that human need i think that that sets us on the right track of um actually solving the issue Absolutely. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about how the numbers in certain areas have increased and decreased, but really the the number that we should be striving for um, all around the world, really, but in the United States also where we can make a difference is zero. The number should be zero of people who have to live on the streets or in shelters. Um, and I think that we've kind of showcased how we can actually make that happen. This is not just some utopia that could exist uh, in the far future, but this is something that we can make actionable steps toward. So please check out all of the links in the show notes, um, and hopefully we can all make a difference if we all join together. Um, if you want to hear more of our podcast, um, you can check us out on Spotify, uh, and on Apple Podcasts and on wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow our blog where we put all the show notes at medium.com slash solutions. And you can follow us on all social media. Look us up, Solutions, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And uh, if, if you have any suggestions about ideas you want to you want us to talk about in future episodes, we're open to pretty much any idea as long as there are actionable solutions to... Um, to solve it. And please let us know what you thought about all of this. Um, we are dedicated to uh, making this a an effective podcast that really makes its mark on the world and, and changes people's perspectives and drives people to action. So, and we um, could use all of the support that we can get with this goal. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Take care, everyone.